Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Welcome online if you're watching. Welcome to our Squamish family. Squamish family. It's so hard to say in one word. Squamish family. Everybody say that right now. As you tune in and watch, uh, I, I'm back after a week of being away. Did you miss me? Yeah. My wife said that the loudest and she was with me. Um, we were camping last week and it was amazing. It was fun. It was wet and cold. Uh, but I want to tell you a story. Um, I'm going to ramble a little bit. Forgive me if you're new here for the first time, watching online for the first time. You'll get used to it after a while. Um, you just need to know a few things about me right now. One, I went for a really big hike today. Uh, today's hike was like a lie. It was like a lie because I don't know if you've ever been promised something but delivered something different. <laughs> ever been in that position before? Yeah. Some of you are like, yeah, my dating life. <laughs> you all be like, oh, I've never said that, but you thought it. I was told that I'm going to go on a hike that was 2.4 hours, uh, 6.9 kilometers. This hike ended up being something like 3.5 hours and 9.3 kilometers. I didn't come prepared mentally for that extra three kilometers. Ever been in that situation? So because of this, I went up and down a mountain and it almost killed me. I had to carry my four-year-old for about three or four kilometers of that hike. Uh, She fell asleep on my head. Ever hike down a mountain for three kilometers with a four-year-old resting on your head? You will, yep, thank you, all the dads out there. I know that feeling. You will have compressed spinal issues for a long time. I went straight home, I rolled my back out, and I didn't take as much time to go through my notes because my back was stuffed. But this is where all good Pentecostal preachers say, well, it's all about the Holy Spirit. Yeah? Can I get an amen? Holy Spirit's going to do the work. Yeah, good. We were on a, we were a camping trip last week, um, and we went fishing. Um, my son loves to fish. If you know my son, he's, he's turning 10 this year. He's always been into fishing. Uh, we packed his fishing rods as just a, a thing to appease his desire to fish. No one ever thought that he'd catch anything. We've never been up to this lake. Um, we've never really fished in Canada before. And we went out and, you know, with good friends and we just like gave him a fishing rod and we did the tackle the way we thought it would work. And, uh, and we just let him do his thing for a while. And... He's just fishing, and I think he was there for a good half an hour just doing his thing. I'm like, this is so good. It's filling his tank. At no point as his father did I believe he'd catch something. And parents out there, you know what I mean, right? You love your kids. You're, you're, you think they're amazing. But at the same time, you know, there's just sometimes your kid picks up a crayon, you don't think he's going to do a Picasso bit of work, right? Like, you're just like, he's got a fishing rod, he's going to have fun. But I kid you not, he's like, Dad, I think i got a fish. And his rod's like bent a little bit, and I'm like, oh, yeah, bud, just reel it in. He's like, no, Dad, I got a fish. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you got a fish. And he's like, he's like I'm like, you got a weed. That's what you got. Anyway, we pulls this, and this fish comes out. <laughs> this is a big fish. And I'm like, whoa, Levi, your fish is so big, I don't know what to do with it. So I turned out, I'm like, Gordon, what do we do with this fish? This fish is the most useless fish I've ever seen. It did not fight for its life. The moment it was caught and brought out of the water, like usually fish, I don't know if you've been fishing, they're like, they go crazy. They're like, I want to live. They have this instinct desire. They're like us. Ever get a big hook in your mouth and someone's trying to pull you to death? You're going to fight. It's not fighting. It's just, it's just like dead already. That's what I thought. And uh, anyway, Gordon like clubs it. 
it's a thing fishermen do, apparently. They got special clubs. Sorry if you like uh, fish. Um, anyway, <laughs> I look at this thing and I think to myself, my God's a good God, not because he gave me a fish. He's a good guy because he teaches me something every day. My son went fishing with the absolute belief, and he always does, that he's going to catch a fish. And you can ask my wife, Levi always catches a fish. The rest of us, we can go for hours and never catch a fish, but Levi will always catch a fish because he always goes with the expectation he's going to catch a fish. He always goes with the belief that he's there for a purpose, and that purpose is to catch a fish. Now, he caught a really docile, dumb-looking fish, and it didn't really put up a fight, but at the end of the day... His tank was filled because his expectation went before it. Do you get what I'm saying? Like I caught a fish straight after him. I caught a fish based on his faith. It was like a rainbow trout, but it's smaller than his fish. Now, if he was here with us right now, he would make a point of that. Every time we talk about this fishing excursion, he's like, yeah, but your, your fish was small and silly. And, it's like, and it gets smaller each time. Right? It's like, oh, your dad, your fish was like this big. And I'm like, and then two days later, dad, your fish is like this big. I'm like, that's like a tadpole, man. Like, what are we talking about here? But his expectation, I say this, I'll tell you this story because I don't know about you, but we, we currently live in a world where nothing's normal at the moment. We don't know what to expect. Every time a month comes, we're like, what's next? 2020 is going to be that year, right? We're, all gonna ref- we're not even going to say it's terrible. We're just going to be like, oh, how's your day been? This is going to be a few years' time. That's 2020. Um, right it's that year right so every time a month comes I'm thinking like what's next but if all we ever do is we approach life with what's next or what's going to be hard for us to go through if we never come with the expectation to receive something that we've we've come to hope to receive then all we're ever going to do is be reactive to the world rather than proactive or preemptive in our faith I want to know that as a church Avant Life Church is just like my son. We go in there and we're going to fish and we're going to get something because we, that's what we've, we've come to get something. We didn't come here just to cast our line all the time and, and just, we're just doing this for the exercise of it. We just come to church on Sunday for the exercise, right? This is just what we do as Christians. We just throw our line out there and reel it back in but never expect to catch something. If you've come to church, if you're online right now, if you're watching, don't ever come to a Sunday service, don't ever come to a weekend service, don't ever come to a church service and just be here because that's what you do. Come always with the expectation to receive. You come to get something. Not from me. That'd be terrible. That'd just be a docile fish. You come to get something from God. You've come to have something deposited in your life that's not just going to sustain you for tonight, but it's going to sustain you through the week that is building on something that you're going to become somebody that God's called you to be, not a nobody that the world wants you to be. How cool is that? So we're going to talk about something today. Uh, and I, I, I've thought about this for a long time and I've you know, rambled on about this or, you know, you ever had a conversation with a pastor that's like got a thought that hasn't preached it yet? Ever been with a pastor like that? Yeah. Some people are like, yeah, we know. <laughs> well, like they're, they're like, you like got a little issue in your life and they like preached to you like for two hours because <laughs> they got a big issue in their life. <laughs> this has been something that I've been thinking about for a long time. It's been on my heart for a long time. When I say it's been on my heart, not just to share to you, but on my heart in reflection of what am I going through. Now, I'm one of those people that, you know, I don't like to preach from in the midst of the journey. David writes in the Psalms, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, right? 
And that whole vision there, that whole illustration he's giving is actually the shepherds would go through the valley of the shadow of death before their flock and they would remove anything that would harm their flock and then they'd bring their flock through. That's what he's talking about as a shepherd. He understood this. He's saying that's what God does. He goes before. And then as a shepherd, when you preach, when you pastor, when you lead, you must first go before and then come and return to tell the story. And so I feel like I've gone through this a little bit and I'm coming back to, to return and tell you the story that there's something that is you know, missing from the, the Christian faith in the Western world at the moment, especially in the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. And we're about to talk about it today. Now, this is not me to get online and just bash Pentecostals or charismatic. I'm Pentecostal as they come. I was born into a Pentecostal church. I'm the kid that's gone to a thousand church services, hundreds of prayer meetings, a few weddings, and less funerals. Do you get, do you get what I'm saying? Like, I've fallen asleep more times under chairs at churches in my own bed. I get it. I've seen it all. But I also know that God is calling right now us as a church to begin to bridge between what is and what he wants it to be and what he wants it to look like. And, the, you know, like any journey that you go along, you lose some things on the way. Now, some of those things are good to lose, but some of those things aren't good to lose. Like, it's okay to lose your spare, like, pencil while you're out in the, uh, the forest, but, but before technology, it wouldn't be okay to lose your compass, if you didn't know how to read the stars, right? Like there's some things you just can't lose along the way. And we're going to talk about something that I feel that we're getting closer to completely losing sight of as a movement, as a church. And if we do this, we actually disinherit ourselves from what Christ came to give us. So our title for our next few weeks sermons are called Our Great Hope. Now you would have woken up today, prepared yourself as you usually do and in the ways that you usually do knowing that you're going into a world, and if you haven't noticed this, that is becoming more and more dissatisfied, one with itself, but also dissatisfied with others, right? There's, at the moment, the world is currently spending a lot of its time pointing out what they don't like about each other, what it doesn't like about itself. There's this big dissatisf- uh, this, uh, dissatisfying movement taking place. Now, the problem with all of this is that there's no real solution to this. Ever seen the world chase its own tail? It's just what's happening right now. There's no solution to they, they. We as human beings can't resurrect anything without Jesus. And what we're actually looking for right now is a resurrection moment. The world is looking for a resurrection moment. But the Bible says that the world is blind to the resurrection moment. They don't want to see what Jesus has done. They don't want to know the Holy Spirit. But the onus of that, that journey is actually on the Christian believer. The Bible is, and this is going to be shocking for people, the Bible's not written for non-believer. The Bible is written for those who have said yes to Jesus. Now, a non-believer can read it and meet God and have a transformational moment, but this is not, it's not his main purpose. His main purpose was to give guidance to those who have accepted the faith. Now, the Bible says, the truth has set me free. Who quotes that all the time? You can be honest, a little bit of feedback's nice. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now, we say that as if the believer will hear the truth because the preacher preached it, and they'll be set free. But really, the writer, the author, co-penned this with the Holy Spirit. What they're actually saying, what they're trying to point to you is when you know Jesus, when you become a disciple, when you begin to live and grow and to be transformed by the truth, then you find freedom. That's what they actually mean. It's not that you hear the word for the first time and then you... Freedom is a process when it comes to Jesus. 
Salvation is immediate, but freedom from what we live and choose to be shackled by can be a process. And, and, and if you ever hear someone preach otherwise, honestly, they're just not looking at the reality of what takes place in individual lives. I've seen plenty of people suffer from very different addictions, say yes to Jesus, encounter the love of Christ, know that they're saved, but take months, years, and sometimes the rest of their life to overcome the addiction. Tell me, where is the freedom that you say happened immediately? It's just, not, it's just not that way perceived. The reason we say all these things is because the church, we've grown up, I've grown up, maybe you didn't grow up in church, but we've grown up just saying things and it becomes a part of our lexicon. It becomes what we, it's just like the smoke and mirrors almost. Someone says something, you don't know how to respond, say, truth will set you free. See how that card works. Oh, that didn't work. Look. Uh, push deeper into God. Oh, nope. Grace is sufficient. Oh, that one worked for a little bit good. We play this game, but I want to know, I think, I think the church right now is trying to figure out in a world that is slowly dying, in a world that can't contain the strain of carrying the burden of sin, what is the Christian's true great hope? What do we have to offer? What do we believe in in our life that actually separates us from all the other great religions of the world? What actually separates us from what everyone else is going through? This is going to take a few sermons to get through, but I really want you to understand this, that I have heard and I've spoken, so I've been guilty of many Christianese, Christian-esque sentences just that word or that sentence or that phrase that we, you know, design to soothe our own lack of hope. You know what I'm talking about? The Bible says that hope defers makes the heart sick. Yet, if I was to be truthful with you, a lot of our comments that we make as Christians into the response of this hurting world is deferred hope. It's deferred hope because we believe that Jesus can change now, but the end goal is salvation and a graduation into heaven. But this is a flawed concept. This is not a biblical concept either. This is a medieval concept that has been perpetuated through Christian faith. In Western society, we've, whole, we've allowed you know, a lot of Plato's uh, philosophy to affect the way we actually see our own faith in Jesus. We're going to get to that, and you're like, what is he talking about? This is what I think we need to discuss as Christians. What is our great hope? And what hope for change, rescue, transformation, healing, new possibilities do we have in this present world? You might be wondering, well, where are we heading with this? And the reality of what I'm talking about, the answer to all these questions, is found in the resurrection of Jesus and in the promise of our resurrection through Jesus. You've got to understand, not just in his resurrection, but our resurrection through him. This is an important concept as Christians, because this is actually what defines our faith very differently. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the afterlife. Is that okay? Because I think this actually dictates a lot of our faith incorrectly, and how we perceive our faith in the modern, present context. 
So at the end of last year, my amazing grandmother, uh, she passed away, and uh, she was an incredible woman. You know those grandmas where you know they've been up to no good, but then they've met Jesus, and the, the grandma you know is not the grandma some people know, right? And so she's had this transformational encounter with Christ. The grandma I knew was the grandma that was always saying, Ben, I'm praying for you. Jesus, keep you safe. The grandma I know was always the one going, Ben, I know that you are mischievous, that you are naughty and rebellious sometimes, but God's got a plan for your life. This is my grandmother, and she passes away. And it was, it was, you know, not that there's any a good time for someone to pass away in your life, but uh, for those of you who don't know, we, we originated in Australia. We live here. We've been here in Canada now for three years. Um, but to fly home to Australia, one is very far and two very expensive but uh, through the workings of God we had already planned a family holiday and so when my grandmother passed away I was going to be in the country anyway and I just see the goodness of God in that and I was at her funeral and I heard the words spoke and spoken about the truth and the encouragement that she brought to so many people's lives and and it was a beautiful funeral Beautiful ceremony. It went real long. I think every person wanted to say something. That's cool. But one thing I found really interesting, uh, this is not about my own grandmother's funeral, but this was more about just the funeral industry, is that it's like a well-oiled machine. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's quite mechanical. You get half an hour, move on. Half an hour, move on, right? Body in, body out. Or down. Ever been to one of those like funeral homes where the casket goes down? I remember when I was a bit younger and that first happened, I was like, this is amazing. And then someone's like, it's straight to the crematorium. And I'm like, whoa. But it's this industry. Everything's regimented exactly on time and completely down pat. People go to them and then they'll go to the wake or they'll go to the, the celebration of life after and they'll have their cup of tea and coffee, eat cake and they'll talk and they honestly leave or remain just as confused about the afterlife. And they, you know, in the Western world, a lot of the conversation is a Christian type of funeral. So we say Christian things. We talk about the graduation into heaven. We're talking about they're now, that whole concept, they're now up there looking down. Have you ever been into that that? Service where the comfort comes from the fact that, well, your grandmother now lives on in all of us. Or she's cheering you on from the cloud that she's sitting on. There's only one problem as a believer. Ain't none of that true. It's nice, I guess. If you actually think about it, it's a bit creepy. But it's not true from a biblical perspective point of view. See, belief about death and what lies beyond comes in all different shapes, all different sorts and sizes. Even a quick glance at all the major religious traditions will quickly show you that 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 old saying that all major religions are basically the same is a lie. There is a world of difference between the Muslim who believes that a Palestinian boy killed by an Israeli soldier goes straight to heaven and the Hindu who uh, believes that from the rigorous outworking of karma means that one must return in a different body to pursue the next stage of one's destiny. That doesn't look similar. 
when it comes to the afterlife. I remember as a young boy, my father telling me a story. He was saved out of Hinduism into his faith in Jesus. But he told me this story one time that I think it gave me nightmares for years, is that as a young boy, he went to a Hindu funeral and they do cremation. And they stack the wood into this big pile and then they place the body on top and they burn it. And everyone's there for the cremation ceremony. Uh, What they didn't tell a lot of the people there for the first time is that when the body heats up, the air in the lungs begins to heat up as well and the body sit up a little bit and scream as the air exits their mouth. And my dad tells me this, and I don't think he's thinking this through because I reckon I'm about seven years old at the time. I'm like, between that and the Lion King and Mufasa dying, I'm freaked out. And I'm like, this is crazy. But they believe that they're going to be reincarnated and based on how they live their life depends on what they will become in their next life. There's a world of difference between the Orthodox Jew who believes that all the righteousness will be raised to a new individual bodily life in the resurrection and the Buddhist who hopes after death to disappear like a drop in the ocean, losing one's own identity in the great nameless and formless beyond. See, one of the most concerning trends, and I've spoken about this at the start of the sermon, within the Western church is our perspective and our mindset and our language that consigns hope to something found mostly in eternity. We might not realize we're doing it, we might not ever have thought about this, but it's an important concept that we've got to think through and that our hope is on this side of eternity just as it is on the other side of eternity. See, the the moment we accept that salvation is essentially something for the afterlife is the moment we've completely missed the power of what Jesus did here on earth. See, if we treat everything that goes through our life right now as, well, you know what, I've said yes to Jesus, my ticket is stamped, at least I'm saved and going to heaven, then half of, or if not the majority of Jesus' teachings are irrelevant to you. They are irrelevant to you. Because Jesus doesn't talk about heaven as a place of graduation. He talks of heaven as a place here and now. Karl Marx famously spoke of religion as the opium of people. He supposed that oppressive rulers would use the promise of a joyful future life to try to stop the masses from rising in revolt. And to tell you the truth, this indeed has often been the case. But if you were to, if you were to think about what he's saying and you would think about the, the application, my impression is that religion is an opium. But only when religion includes Plato's downgrading of one's body. If you only believe that right now we live in these vessels that are but earthly shadows that have no value then yes, you can buy into that concept that, that, op- that religion is the opium of the masses where, well, you know what, doesn't matter what happens here because you're saved and you're going to get into heaven, your treasure's into heaven. Just somehow get through this life and then the reward is there. That's the only way you can apply what Karl Marx is saying. But this is not what Jesus came to say. That's like saying to somebody, why improve the present prison if release is at hand? Why add oil to the wheels of a machine if it is soon to plunge off a cliff? 
Why would we do this? See, as believers, I know you know this, and we pray about it, and we intercede about it, and we give time and thought about this, where we're like, I'm called to make a difference in this world, but, there's always the but, however, you know what? If I fail here, I've still got my salvation in heaven. I've still got something in heaven. See, by contrast, it's often been observed that the robust Jewish and Christian doctrine of the resurrection, and we're talking about the resurrection of Christ as a part of God's new creation, gives more value, not less value, to the present world and our present bodies. The promise of resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, this is the key doctrine that allowed the early church, early believers to stare down the greatest empire on earth and realize that they were promised wasn't that they were going to get into heaven. That's why they laid their bodies down. The promise was that the work they would do on earth here and now would have eternal value and that there's a hope of resurrection now. If they did not believe that they could resurrect something like the Roman Empire into a life-giving organization or something that's fallen life or something that would find people freedom then we would never have seen the Roman Emperor finally accept Christianity as a faith and stop burning them on on crucifixes and stop feeding them to lions. Their life, what they did, was not based on the fact that they would get into heaven. It was based that they, they would make a difference here on earth and help resurrect something in the name of Jesus. That they had a part to play in the resurrection of mankind, the shifting and changing of minds and hearts. They didn't accept that just because people are warmongers that we would just give up and just you know, enjoy our inheritance in heaven. They realized that if they were to see people that you know, would find love, would find you know, acceptance, would find a, a meaning beyond what this world could give, they would have to fight for the here and now to make a difference of the here and now. Paul does not shy away of this. He speaks of the future resurrection as a major motive for treating our bodies properly in the present time. 1 Corinthians 6.14, he says, By his power God raised the Lord from the dead. That's talking about Jesus. And he will raise us also. He is not talking just spiritual resurrection. He's saying that in all aspects, in the physical world and the spiritual world, he will resurrect We have not spoken for a long time on the concept that Jesus has said that he is a, there is a second coming and there is a resurrection that will take place. And that resurrection is of a new heaven and a new earth, not disembodied bodies hanging out on clouds. There is a resurrection taking place. The moment Jesus was resurrected, resurrection motion is now put in place. It hasn't stopped The world is slowly being resurrected, one life at a time, one mindset at a time, one heart and heart at a time. Not because believers thought that all I had to do was survive here to get to heaven, because they realized that our truth, our hope, our real great hope is resurrection power. Paul goes on to say that there's good reason for not sitting back and waiting for all of it to happen, but for working hard in the present, knowing nothing that is done in the Lord in the power of the Spirit and the present will be wasted in God's future. 
1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If you have not had the revelation of resurrection, why would you do any work for Jesus? Why would you put any hard work? Or why would you sacrifice anything? Why would you lay your life down? Why would you live for him if all you have to do is say yes to him and then somehow live a life that is pain-free, filled with comfort, lots of leisure activities? You know, this is what happens. I can't say that word any other way. The early church, the early Christian doctrine, in my mind, is therefore actually far more powerful and revolutionary than the one that has been affected by Plato's philosophy. People's belief, their robust belief in the resurrection, not people who compromised, not people who went in for a mere spiritualized survival, these early Christians understood the power of resurrection. We can't see death as a moment of just going home at last. A time when we are called to God's eternal peace. If that's the case... We wouldn't, there'd be no point to us really trying to make a difference here on earth. Returning back to funerals for a moment. I honestly wonder how many people are super confused after a funeral. Because when you lose a loved one, It does something. It ignites questions. And as believers, it should actually turn us to the scripture more. It should actually allow us to ask those harder questions with more more of a desperation to know what what we're actually dealing with. I said before, like, thinking that graduating into heaven is like a viewing platform from above, even if we've just said that for sympathy, can really be quite pervasive in in corrupting our own understandings. It allows us to become what we think is emotionally secure, but spiritually and physically fragile in our own faith. Might come as a shock, in fact, for me to tell people that There's very little in the Bible about going to heaven when you die. Not a lot about a post-mortem hell either. Actually, the classic illustration of heaven and hell as we know it is a medieval construct, not a biblical one. A lot of this to do with Dante's influences. Western Christian imagination. 
That's what it is. See, many Christians grow up assuming that whenever the New Testament speaks of heaven, it refers to a place to which the saved will go after death. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus' sayings in the gospels about the kingdom of God are rendered as the kingdom of heaven. And because that's the book or the gospel a lot of people read first, because it's the one at the start, They find Jesus talking about entering the kingdom of heaven. And they have their assumptions confirmed and supposed that he is indeed talking about how to go to heaven when you die, which is certainly not what Jesus or Matthew had in mind. See, the language of heaven in the New Testament doesn't work that way. God's kingdom... And the preaching of Jesus refers not to a post-mortem destiny, not to a place we go when we die. And this is what I find exciting. It's not a place that we escape to from this world. When we talk about God's kingdom, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven is like this, What we're actually speaking about is God's sovereign rule coming on earth as it is in heaven. Not us escaping earth to heaven. This is our great hope, is that we're not left orphans here on this earth to somehow survive so that we can know our long-lost daddy when we get into heaven. Thank goodness that you accept me now, but you weren't there for me when I was on earth. Hey, if I was to be truthful with you, that's exactly the picture we're painting. We might make it look a little bit different, but if I was to strip all the niceties away, what we're saying is that God came in the form of Jesus Christ. He died here on earth for our sins and was resurrected, and then he ascended into heaven so that now that we would believe in him, we would not perish, somehow just survive here on earth and then be accepted into the great halls of, of God when we die. Man, that sounds just, that sounds pretty powerless to me. That sounds like something a human could make up. But if I were then to tell you actually Jesus came to earth, took on the, the, the form of men permanently, by the way, co-partnered with us, took our sins to the cross, died and overcame death and sin and was resurrected. Not that we would just get into heaven, but we would now have access to heaven here and now, that we could now summon the presence of God with our worship and our praise, that we could have boldness to enter the courtrooms of heaven, not when we die, because where's the hope in that? Why would you even pray then? No, he says, you can come into my courts with thanksgiving in your heart. You can enter my courts with praise here and now. And this is why heaven, described by Paul, the heaven described by the gospel writers, is not a distant outcome. And this is what I get excited about. Heaven exists in a parallel concept with the physical side of earth. So you need to know this. When we, when we like, you know, by nature we look up to heaven, right? God come down. 
But the way heaven is described is that it's the other side, the unseen dimension of this world. That there is a kingdom of heaven that exists in the unseen dimension of this world. And that Jesus sits on the throne of that kingdom. And that the Holy Spirit can transcend between that kingdom and the kingdom of earth. That through our relationship with Jesus and access to the Holy Spirit, so can we. But it doesn't look like the movies want you to make it look like, like, oh, I'm just going to go into the spirit realm now. Resurrection was the coming together through Christ. It was the bridge that, that, that spanned the gap. Jesus not only resurrected us spiritually, but he resurrected us physically. We are being made perfect in Christ. So when we pray, the Bible says that our prayers are listened to in heaven, that God hears and inclines his ear. But it also tells us that we get to join the hosts of saints in praising and worshiping God. That's because when we gather here and we pray, the Bible says heaven is not just here because we're here. Heaven is here because it's a part of the dimensions of the world we live in. Heaven is everywhere. The best thing about a Christian is that we're an ambassador for Christ. He says you are not of this world anymore. You're in it, but you're not of it. You're an ambassador. An ambassador understands that now there is two kingdoms in which we transverse. Why we live as if we're an ambassador in exile that's only going to be accepted when we die home. That doesn't make sense to me. Our great hope is that we get to be a part of a kingdom that is live and functioning. We are citizens of heaven that are called to be an ambassador here on earth. I don't know, if that doesn't get your faith excited, I don't know what would. All of a sudden, there's a few things we do need to talk about with this concept. One, yes, he says you're going to heal people in my name. You're going to cast out darkness in my name. Why would, why, would we, why would we need these things if we just got to survive to get to heaven? Now, he said because of resurrection power, you're being resurrected. It means a whole bunch of things. It actually does mean you should treat your body with respect because it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. That it's not a vessel that is worthless. It has value. It was fearfully and wonderfully made. You're created in the image of God. Yes, there's a God that views from the inside out, but he's also a God that views from the outside his creation and he's proud and he wants you to be proud of the vessel that he's given you. That there is a physical resurrection that's going to take place in the second coming of Christ. That we're all going to be made perfect, re-embodied. Maybe we won't look the same. I get that. But at the same time, what we do here on earth, how we live our life here on earth, the Bible says has eternal consequence. In Ephesians, Paul writes that the work that we do co-ministering with Jesus will be spoken about, will be echoed in eternity of the unreachable strengths and lengths and depths of the mercy and graces of God. Why? Because of the way we live, the way we choose to project Jesus through our life. I'm going to tell you this story. I get the worship team to come. It's found in Luke 19, 28 to 40. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about what the, you know, the full concept of resurrection in Jesus looks like. This is just getting your mind around where we're heading. 
This story is about Jesus coming to Jerusalem as king. Uh, We celebrate this story often around Easter time. I'm going to read it to you. It says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of us, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied up, a donkey, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. Imagine that. The Lord needs it. Don't try to do that at the moment. Just got a hot wire a car. What are you guys doing? The Lord needs it. They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus through their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground and on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes up from the mount or down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully, uh, uh, sorry, began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's a really interesting story. Jesus is entering through the eastern gate of Jerusalem, and the concept of bodily resurrection is also a Jewish doctrine. It's a New Testament concept. And many of the prophets and the great teachers of the past understood that resurrection was happening at some point and therefore they got buried at the east gate, east-facing gate, so they would be the first to resurrect. And so when they died, the higher prominence you had, the more likely that the community of Jerusalem would bury you at the eastern gate. Now, it's not included in the Bible, but uh, some of the Jewish culture was to put stones on the graves of these people so that demons and spirits and darkness couldn't torment and so they would put these stones as a form of protection and these are the stones Jesus is actually talking about when he says hey if they don't praise me the stones will cry out now he's not talking about the actual literal stones getting up and crying out what he's saying is if you don't let them praise me here on earth right now then the saints and the prophets of old This is the cool part. We'll step out from the realms of heaven into the realms of earth and give me the praise I deserve. How amazing is that? That we would get lost in stones when Jesus, what Jesus was actually saying is that heaven is not a distant place. It is a parallel place and it's worshipping me. And if you won't worship me right now, if you won't give me the praise right now, heaven is and heaven will invade this place And those tombs will split open and the saints and the prophets of old will stand and declare the goodness of God. Can I encourage you as we go back into worship today in this service, we're only beginning the conversation of resurrection. But as a church, I know He wants us to be a resurrection church, a church that understands that we are called to make a difference to the North Shore. 
Not just to one or two people. I mean a difference. I mean a deep social fabric difference. I mean, I want to see the gospel. He wants to see the gospel change household after our expectation. Just like I said, shouldn't be that we'll just cast a rod and be and do our job. Our expectation is when Jesus says, hey, cast your net to the other side, that they would be filled beyond belief with people needing Jesus. That we would see that resurrection power in our life. Not so that we would just view heaven as a place that we get to go, but we would view heaven here and now, that we are the change agents that the world needs, that we can in our prayer life, in our worship life, in the way that we represent Jesus and how we speak and love on our neighbour, begin to pull heaven into a place that is hurting, into a place that is dark, into a place that is dissatisfied, that is confused, that can't resurrect itself. Your shame, your hurt, your lust, your anger, your rejection, your fail. You can't resurrect anything without Jesus. And if we can't do it, if we can't believe it, if we can't stand firm in Jesus as his disciples and know that this is our inheritance here and now, not for the distant deferred future that only makes our hearts sick, then what does a world without Jesus stand? Any chance of surviving this place without even his bride stepping up and doing something about it? Church, would you stand with me? We're going to worship. We're going to worship in resurrection power. Said that word too many times. You're going to go home tonight, lay in your bed, close your eyes, and be like, there is heaven here right now for me to access. And when you have that thought, begin to pray this simple prayer. Lord, heaven is for here and right now. And just like Elisha's servant couldn't see, would you open my eyes to see? Can I see heaven right now? Would you give me a glimpse of the unseen dimension? Would I begin to live as an ambassador that travels back and forth? Church's main job is to be the conduit between heaven and earth. We transition this transverse this. This is our call and it's beautiful. Let's worship. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.